Hello, everyone, and good evening. I'm Tyler Alone, the host of Under the Microscope, a Syntica podcast. It is my absolute pleasure and immense joy to welcome Mr. Terry Jordan today. Mr. Terry Jordan is going to tell us a wonderful story filled with a roller coaster of emotions, ups and downs, about his life, his journey through battling cancer, being a Vietnam War veteran, war veteran in general, and talking about his journey into making music. Without further ado, I welcome Mr. Terry Jordan. Okay, it's uh, my pleasure today uh, to have our guest, uh, Mr. Terry Jordan, on uh, Under the Microscope, a Syntica podcast. Terry's originally from Wisconsin. Terry graduated from high school in 1967 and went into the Army for two years in 1969 during the Vietnam era. After his discharge in 1971, Terry lived what he refers to as a vagabond life for 10 years until his 31st birthday. It was then that Terry's father told him, if you don't get your stuff together, you won't have much time you're my age. I've changed the words a little around, uh, but uh, you get the point what Terry was trying to say there. One week later, Terry joined the Navy and stayed until he retired in 1998. Now living with Renee in St. Augustine, Florida, Terry is a veteran who since 2006 has survived not only throat cancer, but prostate cancer and lymphoma. He has also at the age of 74 become a songwriter who wrote 12 songs, including one that was published for a Grammy nomination in the category of Best Song for Social Change. It is my honor to welcome Terry Jordan to the podcast. Good afternoon, Tyler. I appreciate uh, you having me on your podcast. I want to thank you. Uh, I am looking forward to sharing my background and life experiences with your listeners. Before we go any further, Tyler, I want to mention a name that I would like you and your listeners to remember. The name is Dame Deborah James. And later, I will explain why her name is so very important. Again, thank you for having me. Harry, uh, as I mentioned in your introduction, you said you grew up in the Midwest. Uh, do you mind telling the audience a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing? Absolutely. It might sound strange to some of your younger listeners, but I was born in a, in a cabin in a very rural area of Wisconsin. Although we lived in a very modest environment, our family was rich in love and emotional giving. My mom and dad were parents who allowed me to develop, grow, and learn as an individual. Although we did not have electricity, running water, or indoor plumbing until I was about 16, I never felt deprived. I had chores to do every day. However, when my work was done, I still had time to be a kid. I enjoyed the wonders of nature, living in the country, and I had what I would now call a voracious appetite for reading and learning 
to understand not only myself, but also the people that I interacted with, my friends, my neighbors, kids, I, other kids that I went to school with. Although we seldom traveled, I always knew that there was a world beyond the small, the small farming community that we'd lived in, and it was available and existed for anyone adventurous enough to explore its mysteries. Midway through my junior year of high school, my parents lost their jobs in the local sawmill, and we moved to Minneapolis. I went from a class of being about 100 kids to over 1,000. Moving to Minneapolis, Minnesota was an eye-opening experience and my first real glimpse of that world beyond. You mentioned the move to Minneapolis. How was this uh, an impact in your life at that time? Well, during my first years of high school, I had taken classes in typing and shorthand. When we moved to Minneapolis and I entered my senior year of high school, I was eligible for a program where you went to school in the mornings and would work in the afternoon. I had a job in one of the largest banks in Minneapolis. Each day, I went from being a high school student in the morning to working with and collaborating with men and women in their 20s and 30s. I quickly realized that definitely was an exciting and interesting world beyond that which I had lived in Wisconsin. When I graduated in 1967, I continued working at that bank. However, as much as I was enjoying myself at that time, the United States was at war in Vietnam and there was the military draft. My dad had served in the Navy in World War II, and he had instilled in me that military service was an obligation that he believed people owed for living in a country that valued and provided freedoms. By 1968, I had decided to join the military. At that time, you could, as they say, you could volunteer for the draft and serve two years of active duty. I volunteered, and in February 1969, I joined the Army. Well, I, I first want to thank you and your, your father for the service that you provided, um, you know, and all of uh uh, people that served uh, in the military over the years. Uh, but my question, Terry, is how did the Army impact your life? Most of the friends that I interacted with or grew up with considered military service to be an interruption in their lives. As is my nature, I saw it as a door that was opening to new experiences. And yes, I did have some trepidation because of Vietnam. However, I trusted that somehow, no matter what happened, I would have a positive experience. When I joined, I was sent from Minneapolis to Fort Campbell, Kentucky for my basic training. 
it was immediately evident upon my arrival that the drill instructors believed it was their mission to get us ready to go to war. At the end of the first week, however, there was a something that happened it was just like a scene in a movie. As we stood in formation one morning, one of the drill sergeants asked if anyone knew how to type. I immediately raised my hand and as fate would have it, my military experience dramatically changed. I was never the one to raise uh, my hand first in classes, but I, I have to ask what happened and how did that change things for you in the military at that point? Well, evidently the company clerk, the person who did all of the administrative duties for that basic training unit had been in an accident and there was no one who could take his place. By that afternoon, I knew everything that was required for the company commander's life to run smoothly. And I became, as he put it, indispensable. For, so for the next seven weeks, rather than learning how to march, I actually could already walk in a straight line, shoot a rifle. I had spent most of my younger years in Wisconsin hunting and salute. I had watched enough military movies to understand how to do that. I worked in an office and was on a first name basis with those very same drill sergeants. When basic training ended eight weeks later, the company commander arranged for me to transfer from Fort Campbell, Kentucky to Fort Knox, Kentucky to attend clerk typing school. Instead of going to advanced infantry training with most of the other recruits from my basic training unit, I spent my two years of army service at Fort Knox. I often asked myself whether knowing how to type saved my life. I will never know. However, my path once again had changed. That's uh, incredible. And it's, you know, sometimes amazing in life how these little twists and turns can really uh, change one's path. What did you do after the Army? Where were the next steps? Where did you go? Well, after the Army, I began that vagabond life you discussed when you introduced me. It was never difficult for me to find work, so I had a series of jobs all over the United States. I would work somewhere long enough to learn the job, and then I would get bored and restless to move on. In all honesty, I was going nowhere, and it was the lifestyle that led me to have that conversation with my dad that you alluded to in my introduction. And shortly after that conversation, I joined the Navy just before my 31st birthday. So now in the Navy in your life, Terry, uh, what are the impacts that were ahead of you uh, with joining the Navy? Well, life in the Navy was perfect. It suited me to a T. 
The Navy offered me the structure and discipline that I so desperately probably needed. But more importantly, I was able to work for a few years at one job and then move on to the next job, all the while staying under the umbrella of government service. As a person who wanted to drift through life while getting a regular paycheck, I was, as they say, living the dream. So for the next 18 years, I traveled the world from Hawaii to the Middle East, spent thousands of days and nights at sea, and served in the Iran-Iraq War. After completing 20 years of total military service, I retired in San Diego, California. Again, Terry, I can't thank you enough for your service. So now living in San Diego, uh, what are you doing there in San Diego? So after I retired from the Navy in 1998, I went to work for San Diego County. Prior to retiring, I had completed a paralegal course at the University of San Diego, and that qualified me to work in the San Diego County Courts as a Judicial Administrative Secretary. Okay. So a little bit of a different path from going from the military, but still using those skill sets you had in the military. This may be difficult next, uh, Terry, but I'd love to learn a little bit more about your cancer diagnosis and how that all happened and what were the, the steps that you had to take in hearing those, those words? I have no problem talking about it at all. One morning in October 2006, as I was shaving, I noticed what I thought was an ingrown hair on my throat. I went to see my primary care doctor who advised me to go see an ear, nose, and throat specialist. The doctor did a needle biopsy of that very small bump, and later that week, he called me and told me that the results came back as squamous cell cancer. I cannot sit here and imagine what that would feel like, Terry, and I hope I never have to. I have had family that have gone through this, and it's that must be a uh, a shocking day. And I'm just curious, how did the news of having cancer affect you? What were you feeling in that moment? Uh, like most people, the only thing I knew about cancer was that in 2002, my dad had died from cancer. I had friends who had died from cancer, and I believe no matter how rich, no matter how famous, no matter how influential you were, you could die from cancer. So obviously, the diagnosis of throat cancer was very troubling. It was also surprising because I had never been a smoker. Fortunately, although again, I would not know how important these two factors would be, I had fantastic insurance from my years of government service, and I had friends who knew doctors in the cancer field. I've always wondered, you know, and 
you'll maybe help me realize this, but who was the first person you told about your cancer and why? Why that person? Well, the first person I called was my mom. Since my dad had died of cancer, I knew my mom would be upset by my diagnosis of getting cancer. I told her not to worry, that I was taking care of myself, and that once I had more information, I would call her back. The next person I called was a friend whose husband had died of prostate cancer. I went to see her that afternoon, and together we set up a medical team to confront the disease head on. I was fortunate because of the good insurance that I had, I could choose any doctor I wanted. Within a week, I had arranged for a surgeon, an oncologist, and a radiologist. I told my doctors to always give me their honest opinions about my prognosis. They agreed to be brutally honest with me. By this point in my life, I honestly felt that I had lived two or three lifetimes in terms of the adventures I experienced and the people I knew. I was ready to die if that was what was going to be the next step in the world beyond. However, I was also going to do everything I could to fight cancer and live. Can you describe to the viewers and myself a little bit more about the medical process you went through with your cancer and your battling with cancer? Absolutely. By the end of October 2006, probably three, four weeks since my initial diagnosis, I was in surgery. My surgeon performed what is called a radical neck dissection. He had taken out a fist-sized tumor that stretched from the top of my left ear to the middle of my throat. My doctor also had discovered the cancer had spread into the lymph nodes of my neck and down into my upper chest area. When the doctor came into the recovery room, he told me that based on the size of the tumor and how it had spread into my lymph nodes, my prognosis for survival beyond six months was not good. However, the surgeon said that I should go see my oncologist. So I went to see my oncologist that afternoon. My oncologist told me he had read the surgeon's report and although he would bombard me with seven weeks of intense chemotherapy, he concurred with the surgeon's prognosis of limited survival beyond six months. But the oncologist said I should go see my radiologist for his opinion. So I went to see my radiologist. When I walked into the radiologist's office and asked for his opinion, the first thing he told me was that based on my research, I believe I can save your life. And it was, it was amazing, Tyler, hearing that one word, research, 
was the first time since the beginning of my cancer diagnosis that I felt hope for survival. And obviously, I did survive. Through the radical neck dissection that took apart the left side of my neck, intensive and debilitating chemotherapy that caused neuropathy throughout my body, and seven weeks of exhausting daily radiation that burned my salivary glands and destroyed much of my taste buds, my life was changed in many ways. And as difficult as it may seem to be, ultimately, I believe I changed for the better. By the end of throat cancer journey, from October 2006 to May 2007, I had lost approximately 80 pounds and was a shell of the physically fit veteran who had retired in 1998. That is uh, one long journey, Terry, and I'm glad that you're sitting here with me today to tell your story because, as you know, not everyone makes it through that type of journey. And yeah, hearing research for the first time was also a whole new world for me to understand what that meant. And I'm, I'm glad I'm living that world now with uh, learning and focusing on cancer research. So what did you do? What was the plan going forward after this? Now, even though the doctors had removed the tumors, and even though they believed the cancer cells were destroyed by the chemotherapy and the radiation, for the next five years, it would be necessary to have a scan every three months to see if there were any lingering cancer cells anywhere in my body. So I realized early on after all of this had happened that I needed some way to rehabilitate myself physically, mentally, and emotionally. So I enrolled in a ballroom dance class. Although I had limited stamina, the body and mind connection that occurred while listening and moving to music helped with my neuropathy. It lifted my spirits and invigorated my energy level. I continued taking ballroom dance classes, and eventually I was able to go back to work. So you were in a remission at this point. Did you believe or feel that you had beaten cancer completely, or what were your thoughts at that moment? At this point, let me say and tell your listeners that I do not believe anyone beats cancer. My honest belief is that once you have cancer, you live with cancer for the rest of your life. Obviously, I was very pleased my throat cancer had gone into remission and that by 2012, after five years of having clear body scans every four to six months, my doctors felt I was as they put it, cancer-free. But during this period in 2001, just before I became cancer-free, my mom died of cancer. It is important to mention 
Neither of my parents had regular checkups or physicals. I want to stress to anyone listening to this podcast or anyone who hears it, that the, how important taking the initiative with your health care and having regular checkups is so vitally important. A case in point, in 2015, during a routine physical, I discovered I had what was referred to as a rising PSA. Any man who's gone in for any kind of a checkup will know what a PSA is. But my rising PSA signified that I might have prostate cancer. Now, at this point, you've entered into remission for your throat cancer, and now you have this face scene in front of you, a rising PSA. So for the listeners, prostate-specific antigen, which is a, a biomarker that could signify prostate cancer. What's going through your mind? How do you feel at this moment? Well, the fact that I had gone through cancer once was fortunate, I believe, because I was already armed with information. And I felt like I could take, once again, the initiative in my approach to treatment. So I immediately went to a doctor who did 12 needle biopsies of my prostate. And yes, I did have prostate cancer. At this point in life, I was 66 years old. I had various people advise me that I could do nothing and there was a possibility my prostate cancer could be, as they called it, quote, slow growing, and I might end up dying of a heart attack before the cancer killed me. Other doctors and friends said that I could do what was called watchful waiting or hormonal treatments that might be beneficial to warding off the cancer. Earlier, you may recall, I mentioned a friend of mine whose husband had died of prostate cancer. She told me that it was not an easy death. So hearing this from your friend and knowing what you've experienced with your previous cancer treatment, what was the decision going forward at this point? I decided to have a prostatectomy via, via robotic surgery. As far as I was concerned, my prostate was a cancerous tumor that the doctor needed to remove as quickly and efficiently as possible. Fortunately, the surgery was successful and my PSA numbers went to, quote, undetectable, and once again, I was in remission from cancer. Once again, however, for the next five years, I went for blood tests every three months to have my PSA checked. So I've had this story from others, and I've had others around me that have had a similar experience. And I'm curious, what were the side effects of the prostatectomy uh, for your cancer surgery, were there side effects? Yes, I'll be totally honest. There are side effects from having a prostatectomy. As anyone will tell you, 
Having your prostate removed causes issues that many men do not want to deal with or talk about. The two words that come to mind are incontinence and impotence. After my prostate surgery, I joined a prostate cancer support group and went to a few of their meetings. The people who attended would introduce themselves and discuss their prostate cancer experience. At one of the meetings, a man introduced himself and said that he had a rising PSA. He was wondering what he should do because he had just gotten married to a younger woman and he did not want to be unable to please her sexually. Therefore, he decided to utilize watchful waiting rather than have surgery so that he would not have to deal with possible impotence. Unfortunately, a year later, his cancer metastasized and within six months, he was dead. Just as men equate the issues of prostate cancer with how they view themselves as masculine, I know from experience of sitting and talking with women who are going through chemotherapy or radiation, women have similar issues with how breast cancer makes them view themselves as feminine. Both cancer diagnoses put people in the difficult position of having to choose how they want to live or die. And that's pretty much, you know, I don't want to get into the issues of, of what people should choose. So that's enough about that. Yeah, no, totally understand. So you've now had cancer twice and survived twice among all the other life adventures you've had. It's incredible at this point. Tell me what's happening in your thought process of living your life going forward now. You, you've you had all these life experiences. What, how do you keep pushing forward, Terry? So prior to my prostate cancer diagnosis, after taking these various dance classes, I had decided to enroll in Ballroom Dance Teachers College. And yes, there is such a thing because I decided that I wanted to become a dance teacher. After I graduated, I opened a dance studio in San Diego. And because I felt I had been given a gift of life twice now because I survived cancer, I felt it was important to find a way to give back for that gift of life. Because I had a good retirement income from the military and government service, and I had good health insurance, the concept of the dance studio was that I would give ballroom dance lessons and I would donate 100% of the dance fees to whatever charity my students supported. In 2017, this business concept caught the attention of Giving Back Magazine in San Diego. Over a period of 12 months, each month, the magazine would feature one of my students and a reporter from CBS Channel 8 interviewed me under the title, Cancer Wanted Him to Sit It Out, But He Chose Dance. 
that's incredible and that catchphrase is is awesome um i really really like that so were you content with your life in san diego at this point or what were your thoughts at this time about what were the next steps in in your future so by 2018 i was still in remission from throat and prostate cancer and i had raised close to twenty thousand dollars through my dance studio to for various charities i auditioned to become a gentleman host on cruise ships. I had seen various advertisements and it, it was a you know what I considered would be a good way to travel, meet interesting people, and live a life of dancing. So by 2019, I was a gentleman host traveling around the world, having adventures, exciting experiences, and meeting interesting people. Life was once again moving forward on a new path. Then in June 2019, during a port visit in Dublin, Ireland, I met Renee Inge. Renee was a widow from Florida who was traveling alone for the next few weeks. While she was on this cruise, we had pleasant conversations over coffee, lunches and dinners, and during a few port visit excursions, we connected. It felt easy and comfortable to be together, and we became friends. After Renee left the cruise, we stayed connected, and she later visited me in San Diego, where our friendship turned to romance. In the process of getting to know each other, I had told Renee about my cancer history, particularly the issues from prostate cancer. We eventually discovered that the intimacy necessary to build and sustain a loving relationship had not diminished. So what a wonderful story and very romantic meeting um, Renee in Dublin, Ireland and how that relationship became to be. And that must have been a very difficult conversation with your cancer history at first, I, I would imagine. So how did you imagine the cross-country aspect of California and Florida with you and Renee? Well, by December 2019, as I mentioned, Renee had come to, and visited me in San Diego and we had discussed putting our lives together. So by December 2019, I moved to Florida, and that was just as COVID hit the world. So during all of 2020, Renee and I stayed isolated, developing a close and wonderful routine to stay safe. It was amazing how this time helped us grow closer than we might have in a regular normal world. The problem was, when I had originally thought about moving to Florida, my plan had been to continue teaching dance. However, with COVID, that was obviously not possible. In the back of my mind, I had always thought about learning to play the piano. So I bought a piano and began taking lessons via the internet. By 2021, Although I was no expert, I could play rudimentary songs. And one day I said to Renee, why don't I write some songs? Indeed, she said, why not? Just as an aside, to fill in some of the cancer background, in 2021, 
while I was embarking on my new songwriting adventure through a, one of my regular blood tests, I was diagnosis, diagnosed with lymphoma. Fortunately, it was discovered in initial stages. So once again, it's simply a matter of having blood tests done every three or four months. By 2022, inspired by people and moments and stories from my life, I had written the lyrics to 12 songs. That's incredible. So we've gone from military service to all of the number and countless number of jobs you've had, battling cancer, meeting Renee. But I want to talk a little bit about the lyrics of these songs that you wrote. How do you know what to do with the lyrics and how did you know they could be songs? What was the thought process of building these songs and putting them together? Ever since going to the dance classes or growing up with music, I've always listened to music. I've always listened to the, the kind of rhythm of lyrics. And whether it was fate or kismet, I ended up getting in touch with a former guitar player turned record producer in Nashville, and her name is Robin Ruddy. Robin and her husband had opened a company called Parlor Productions after they got tired of being on the road and touring with bands. Another connection Rob, Robin and I had was that her husband had passed away from prostate cancer. So I ended up going to Nashville in November 22. Robin and I sat down and I showed her the lyrics. We went through them. I had a, a concept for each song of what kind of voice I felt belonged with the song. And we recorded the 12 songs and put them under the name of an album called Along the Way, which is also a featured song on the album. And Along the Way is, is the song about the love that my mom and dad had. And one of the songs, When You Come Back, is the one that was nominated for a Grammy in the category of Best Song for Social Change. And it discusses issues of post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, that so many servicemen and women have. And actually, so many men and women had during COVID. Okay. Very interesting. And yeah, Robin Rudy, uh, for anyone in the audience, that's incredible. You know, Robin Rudy has toured with the likes of Shania Twain, Rod Stewart, and has made music with Terry Jordan on this podcast that we have today. Incredible. Little side note for the audience, which I, I thought was very interesting. Do you believe a cancer diagnosis can cause emotional anxieties related to stress going through treatment, just as you described people experience with war and COVID of PTSD? Absolutely, yes. Uh, PTSD is sometimes referred to as a moral injury because it's, and it's usually been considered a disability associated 
with servicemen and women who have experienced war and combat situations and have had to do things that go against their moral compass. Since 2020, it's been recognized that the economic health and social ramifications of COVID have produced traumatic fears and anxieties in people. In addition, other occupations such as police, firefighters, teachers, students, and other areas that are fraught with emotional experiences are now in that same traumatic arena. It is certainly no stretch of the imagination to believe cancer has the capability of emotionally crippling some people. Terry, you previously talked about this term research uh, and how it's changed your views on cancer. I, I know that research has dramatically changed my views on cancer. Do you believe people are truly aware of the research that's happening in the world of cancer? Or do you think myself and others on this side of research and those like yourself advocating um, need to allow people to be more aware of cancer research? I think most people are just like I was back in 2006 when I knew so little about cancer other than the deaths it causes. And I'll, and I'll be honest with you, Tyler, most people do not want to know anything about cancer. People want to believe it will not happen to them, or if it does, they will somehow get the medical care they need at a cost they can afford. So then how do you think we can change that lack of knowledge? How do you hope to change that? Well, I, I know that despite best efforts and breakthroughs in medicine, people will still die from cancer. In fact, I just saw on the internet that Paul Rubens, who played Pee Wee Herman, died from cancer. And he had kept it silent for six years. Rather than let people know that he was suffering from cancer or had cancer, and it, obviously it's his right to not share that information. But I believe the more that people acknowledge that they are living with cancer rather than dying from cancer, it helps to change some of the stigma of cancer. So by being honest, open, and forthcoming when I talk about cancer, I might give hope to someone who has received a cancer diagnosis. Now, my first cancer diagnosis was in 2006, and now 2023, I'm still alive. I also want to encourage people to take the initiative about getting the tests that discover cancer and be aware of minor changes in their cancer status. For example, at the end of 2022, one of my blood tests showed my PSA had become, once again, detectable. And according to that, 
there was a very good possibility that my cancer, my prostate cancer had returned. I decided to go through 35 days of radiation. And because of that, my PSA numbers have gone back down. I also, at the start of my radiation, set a goal to be healthier and stronger at the end of my radiation. On my last visit, my cancer doctor said my PSA and lymphoma numbers are better and whatever I am doing is working, so keep at it. It's uh, it's funny, sometimes we don't always know what we're doing is working, but we just have to keep that path and it, uh, it can create a brighter outcome. I. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about your music. I'm hoping you can share more about your music and how that's going currently. Absolutely. The songs are doing well on Spotify and SoundCloud, as well as some other streaming platforms, such as YouTube Music and Pandora. The numbers of listeners are steadily increasing. Although the royalties I receive are not much, with 100% of the funds going to cancer research, I am hopeful the numbers will continue to increase each month. In a perfect world, Tyler, what I would love to have happen is that some established musicians would decide to record one of my songs and the exposure of my songs would greatly increase. Now, you may remember, and your listeners may remember, at the beginning of our interview, I asked you to remember the name Dame Deborah James. So rather than discuss all my songs, which I do hope everyone will listen to, I would like to tell you about Deborah James. Yeah, Terry, who who is Deborah James? And uh, we've heard the name a couple times now. And why is she um, a significant part of your cancer story? Uh, Deborah James was an English journalist, educator, and just like you, she was a podcast host from London. In 2016, when she was just 35, Deborah was diagnosed with bowel cancer. A simple colorectal exam might have caught or diagnosed the cancer. However, her doctors had decided because she was young, such a test was not needed. After her diagnosis, Deborah James hosted You, Me, and the Big C on BBC Radio, where she talked openly about her struggles with cancer. Deborah signed off her podcast each day by saying, Check your poo today. In 2021, Deborah told her listeners that her cancer was moving in the wrong direction and the drugs she was taking were no longer effective. One morning in early June last year, I read Deborah James' story on the internet and about two weeks later, she had died on June 28, 2022. As I had mentioned, my songs the ones I wrote tell a story, share an experience, or express some emotion. We talked about When You Come Back. The song I wrote called Searching for Your Love is about finally finding love with Renee. 
my song, Just a Remnant, is about feeling an emotional connection despite advancing age. And my song, One of the Best, tells how the outward appearances of a person might be deceiving. Check Your Poo Today, however, is a song that I hope could somehow, someday, save someone's life. If one person listens to Check Your Poo Today and it convinces them to have a colorectal exam that discovered cancer in early enough stages to save their life, then I believe, for me, that would be a lasting and worthwhile legacy for my life. Incredible, Terry. Incredible to hear about your songs. And I hope everyone listening to today's podcast goes on Spotify and SoundCloud and YouTube and listens to these wonderful songs. And without further ado, um, Terry's going to play Deborah James's tribute song, Check Your Poo, today here on the podcast. And let's all have a listen. I know my time is coming soon When I'll slowly drift away Although I still have more to do And things I like to say I think of what I might have done If my body wasn't dying Am I angry to believe in if I say no, you know I'm lying People who I never knew Send cars with their best wishes And neighbors who I haven't met Made all my favorite dishes My loved ones come to see me And all my friends stop they sit with me in the sunshine We laugh so hard we cry If I somehow was within your life And my presence brought a smile I thank God for letting me be here To visit for a while And the sad so very grateful I didn't die alone My spirit stayed and heard you say I can't believe she's really gone My final wish from me to you As I slowly drift away Live each moment filled with joy 
check your poo today And check your poo today Harry, thank you for being a part of my podcast and telling your story and playing that wonderful song. Not only telling your story about living with cancer, but also about how your story might be an inspiration of hope to others with a cancer diagnosis. For everyone listening, please go to your favorite streaming site so you can follow Terry Jordan and listen to all 12 of those beautiful songs. I have listened to all of them myself, and they're definitely worthwhile both in the content, the emotional impact they bring, and the fact that they raise money for cancer research. Syntica and the platform here wants to continue to promote Terry Jordan's podcast and promote his songs to keep raising money for cancer research because I know how important that is, being a cancer researcher myself. Terry, can you just please leave the audience with any concluding thoughts? Absolutely. Again, I would like to thank you, Tyler, for having me on your podcast. I would also like to thank your listeners for letting me share the story of my journey. For any of you who are going through a struggle with cancer, or if you know someone who is going through a struggle with cancer, I believe that if you can confront something as devastating as cancer, there is nothing you cannot accomplish in life. Be vigilant about addressing your health care needs. At the end of my life, I want to be known as a man and a person who cherished every moment, who valued each experience, and who loved with an open and accepting heart. If I am that person, some will say, I was one of the best. I'd like to thank and hope that my last words will be, what's next? Well, that's a wrap for today's episode of Under the Microscope, a Syntica podcast. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into learning about Mr. Terry Jordan and his vagabond life It was so interesting to understand the ins and outs of his cancer diagnosis, what he felt emotionally during that time, how he came through this with many life lessons and what he's doing now to advocate for cancer and cancer research. Again, thank you so much, Terry, for being on the podcast today. It was a pleasure.